This episode of Fieldwork includes a discussion of the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Partnerships for Climate Smart Commodities. In the interest of transparency, we'd like to let you know that both Tara Vanderdusen and Mitchell Hora have applied for funding from the program. Welcome to the Fieldwork Podcast. I'm Tara Vanderdusen. And I am Mitchell Hora. We are a podcast by farmers for farmers, and I'm a dairy farmer and environmental scientist in New Mexico. And I'm a farmer from Southeast Iowa, uh, Washington County. A huge thanks to the Walton Family Foundation for supporting us here on this season of the podcast. Today, our guest is actually an East Coast guy, but we won't hold that against him too much. We won't hold it against you. Uh, Robert Bonney is our guest here today. He's in Washington, D.C. We got him uh, tied in here on our video connection and and. Uh, He's got a nice American flag in the background. Mine's over here on that my other my other wall. So good to see. He looks very professional compared to us, but I have my American flag as well. So I think we're all representing today. I put my tie on for you guys today. Yeah, Tara <laughs> and I were talking about like, do we need to get dressed up? Like I've got my blazer back over here that I can put over my fieldwork <laughs> t-shirt, you know? But well, I was like, no, we're farmers. We're coming here to talk farm talk. It's gonna be fine. Uh, a little bit about Mr. Robert Bonney here. He works uh, within the Biden administration at USDA, United States Department of Agriculture. His formal title is the Undersecretary for Farm Production and Conservation. And this isn't the first time he has worked in a high-level job at USDA. During the Obama administration, he served as Undersecretary for the Natural Resources and Environment. Uh, So, Mr. Robert Bonney, thanks for hopping on here today. Where do you want to start? Thank you guys for having me, and I'll, I'll start in any direction you point me. Set the set the stage a little bit. Tell us about who you are, where you come from. As Tara pointed out, you're out on the East Coast. Tell us about that, and tell us about, you know, why is this? Well, we don't want to go that far. Tell us about yourself first. <laughs> so uh, I actually grew up on a farm in Kentucky. Uh, my, my parents both in the horse business, and uh, my dad was actually an attorney that did nothing but horse-related law, so... Uh, you can do that and make a living in Kentucky. But um, we had, uh, when I was a little kid, we had a dairy. Then we had a commercial beef operation. I spent a lot of time in my summers throwing uh, hay in the barn for the other side of the farm for the horses. And then I've I've always been interested in natural resources. I I've, I've have a degree in forestry, a degree in uh, resource economics. And, you know, I've just always been around land and forestry and agriculture and um when I left grad school, spent some time working for Environmental Defense Fund, doing all private land incentives for conservation. Spent eight years in the Obama administration and then took a little hiatus to Duke and uh, did a little academic work there and a little teaching. And here I am back at USDA. So that's probably a good place to ask. What exactly do you do at USDA? Like expand on that. I mean, we gave your formal title, but maybe give a little more than that um, to our listeners. Yeah. So USDA is divided up into different mission areas. And I'm there's seven undersecretaries. I'm one of the seven. The, the mission area I oversee is um, farm production and conservation. We have NRCS, we have FSA, and we have RMA. So we've got the, you know, what I would argue, the, some of the core programs of USDA, certainly on the farm side. Uh, what's it, how's it been here now? What, what's different, I suppose, this, uh, you know, this current administration and basically, you know, this current time frame in D.C., how is it different now than uh, than previously when you were involved in some of these roles? I will say that one big 
difference between when I showed up in 2009 for the Obama administration and showed up last year for the Biden administration is the way um, agriculture and forestry are engaged in climate policy. There were a lot of folks, you don't need to tell you all this, really concerned about what climate policy looked like in 2009, 2010. Whole argument cap and trade and all that stuff. I had a lot of folks nervous. Not that folks aren't nervous now, not that they don't have concerns, not that they don't care what, what climate policy will look like, uh, but, but they're at the table in a really meaningful way. And that's, that's, that's great. And we're going to get better policy as a result of it. That's, you know, so refreshing to hear, I think, and such progress um, to have, you know, more farmers at the table and being engaged in those conversations. I think it's going to get us a lot further, a lot faster, um, having all the stakeholders there. I like the observation, too, on over the last 12 years, really, there's been a lot more of a coming together in this. And I think the key observation for me is that by focusing on, you know, climate smart ag, we can all win here, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, no matter what your real goal is that, you know, if you're focused solely on climate, okay, we can help to address that. If you're focused solely on farm profitability and, you know, uh, those small, you know, I don't know, stakeholder farms and keeping government out of some of those farms, like you can still have that as well. And it's all through regenerative ag. It's all through smarter, more sustainable farming. And what I think has been really interesting is seeing the amount of, you know, bipartisan support going towards a lot of this too. And I think that's to your point on how the stars have really aligned and how we can really get some things done on a policy side um, to better enable what's happening in the private sector too. I think that's exactly right. And I, you know, we actually have broad agreement on the what, the what being we we all believe in stewardship. We all be, believe in conservation. Folks have concerns about the climate. The how really matters. How do we do it? And folks were concerned a decade or more ago about top down, you know, regulatory approaches. There's broad agreement now that we need to think about voluntary incentive based partnerships market oriented good science i mean there's a lot there's a lot of buy in there and if we if we stay in that place and make sure that ag and forestry are at the table you know we're going to we're going to design much better policy and i would argue it's going to be way more effective on the climate side because we we've learned over the last few decades that the approaches to working lands conservation that actually work are collaborative. They're about partnerships. They're about folks having a seat at the table. And, you know, fortunately, we're in a we're in a relatively good place right now in that. We just got to keep everybody there. I, I have to agree with that because I think one of the things when you have that like top down approach, um, why it made farmers so nervous and ranchers so nervous is because, you know, your conservation on your farm is just so unique to each area, each like there's so many different ways you can do things. There's so many collaborations. And so by really having it be more like grassroots up, it gives like farmers and businesses and technology the, the ability to come together and say, OK, we've got this idea. We've got this plan that we think is going to work in this region um, and then go up. And then spread that information out. And so um, I like that description of kind of that change and that shift. And I feel like I've seen that in the last 10 years, you know, working as an environment consultant, that shift in the approach from USDA. Um, yeah, and it puts the government, you know, government not as dictator, but as partner and facilitator. There's some things that USDA does that are really important. We rely on USDA data, science, other things. 
And as we think about how we step into, you know, being respond, responding to consumer demand for climate smart products or whatever it is, you know, we're going to need a partnership with agriculture and forestry and USDA and others about what what does the role for USDA look like? How do we make sure that um, we add as much value as we can while providing for the flexibility that you talk about? People have got to be flexible. We can't dictate what practices, what lands from the top. We need to we need to incentivize good outcomes. And importantly, we need to keep our eye on the ball that we need to keep folks in agriculture and forestry and business need to keep them on the land. And so anything we do has to, has to be part of that, has to be part of an economically viable outcome for those producers. I think that's totally right. I always talk about sustainability and that, you know, these sustainability initiatives only matter if the farm is also going to be economically sustainable. But um, really want to keep hitting on the partnership side. You recently testified uh, before the House Ag Committee or a subcommittee there. Uh, and you were talking about these partnerships for climate smart commodities. What did you tell them and what, what did you ask them for um, at the House Ag Committee? We announced our intention to do this in the fall and September. We held another public comment period after that to take in more information. Okay, guys, here's our ideas. Tell us what you think and tell us how to shape it. And then we, then we rolled out a couple of weeks ago. And the idea is to take money from the Commodity Credit Corporation and to create a program that is about the production of climate smart commodities. I've been in conservation my whole life. This is not a conservation program. It's not going to take ag land and set it aside or forest land and set it aside. It's going to keep lands in production. And the idea is how do we support the deployment of climate smart practices? How can we provide incentives for producers, groups of producers to do that? And then how can we uh, pick up the costs of measurement, monitoring, verification? And all in the production of a commodity. We're trying to expand markets for commodities. We're trying to create new markets for commodities. And so if producers want to create a climate smart soybean, climate smart beef, climate smart milk, or maybe they want to, maybe they're interested in carbon, carbon markets, great. We can we can help subsidize both the landowner side of that in terms of the and the producer side in terms of deployment of the uh, of the practice and the measurement monitoring. The idea here is to de-risk that. And to have groups of producers create their own projects, develop their own opportunities, bring them forward as groups of producers. We think that'll make it easier for any individual producer to, to participate uh, because it'll lower the costs of, of, of kind of participating in a program like this. And, you know, we'll see what we get. We've got a lot of interest so far, both large and small, and, uh, you know, some folks that have been historically underserved at USDA. We've got bunch of small producers, medium size, some larger commodity groups. So, you know, we'll, we're, we're hopeful, but also recognize that this, this is good. We're going to fund pilots. We're going to learn. We're being upfront about that. We don't know everything. Let's go out and try some stuff. Um, let's see what works. Let's see what agriculture and forestry can do to integrate this into their existing operations. And hopefully we'll learn from that and we'll be able to build over time and really figure out, okay, what is USDA's best role in this, in helping promote these markets? And what are the other partners that we need to be at the table to do that? I think you described that so well and like just put it so well. I think that, uh, you know, now would probably be a good time to say like, I'm, we are submitting an application for um, the Climate Smart Commodities. 
And it's exactly like what you said. We've been looking into this technology for about two years, like seriously going over every detail. And it just has felt like too big of a risk. We wanted to be able to do research with it. We've talked, we had already been in talks with our university about how we could do research on it. And so when you offer something like this, yeah, it just makes it feasible. It makes it feel like, okay, yeah, let's let's apply for this and see what happens. Um, you know, if we get it or we don't, or all the people that are going to end up getting it and being able to test, you know, technology and then share their research and their information, it just moves the needle that much quicker and that much forward for, you know, businesses in agriculture. Yeah. You know, one of the, you all know, our conservation programs all have cost share, right? Cost share requirements. And those can be really useful things to just make sure everybody's got skin in the game. But in the case of this, part of our challenge is exactly what you talked about. You're being asked to undertake something, adopt a technology, adopt a practice, measure, monitor, verify, whatever it is, and their costs associated with it and their risks. You know, we know there's variability in weather and prices and all that stuff, and you're being asked to take on another risk. And so part of the part of the thought here is, is you know, let's let's de-risk this stuff. Let's encourage innovation. Let's recognize that not every project is going to be perfect, but I feel like we're going to get a lot of um, uh, real interest here and some real innovation and, and thoughtfulness here. And, you know, that's the idea. And if we do it right, we'll learn from it. Over time, we can we can tweak, we can turn the dials and figure out what works. Well, I'm seeing a ton of interest in it. And yeah, full disclosure, I mean, my company, Continuum Mag, is applying as well. And uh, with our, our, my main piece I believe I can contribute and my company can, along with our partners we're bringing in is, is to allow for better transparency for the farmer to be able to better understand their actual carbon footprint. And we're, you know, framing everything around what I call the carbon cost of production. You know, farmers today can calculate their financial cost of production, but I'm one of the farmers deepest into this versus any farm in the country. And I have no idea what my farm's carbon footprint is. And that's a major problem because there's not a lot of transparency there around how I can quantify my innovative practices that I'm doing because some of the things that we do are not in the Comet Farm tool, which is one of the key tools to be able to quantify your carbon output. And and we just need a lot more innovation, a lot more science going into calculating that real footprint. And then hopefully from there, of course, we want to develop markets that reward farmers based on merit versus only rewarding based on practice change. And to tee this up too, okay, so Commodity Credit Corp is putting a billion dollars towards this. I don't know if we mentioned that before, a billion with a B out of their overall budget. It's already existing taxpayer dollars that are just getting reallocated, which I love. Interesting piece that you brought that up on that there's some risk with this and USDA can help to offset some of that risk. And RMA, of course, is, you know, plays a huge role too. But, you know, how do you see that, I guess, working long term? How do we open up to allow for that innovation? You know, think, thinking about USDA's role here, I think is actually really important. In the, we've got we've got considerable consumer market interest. In the short term, it probably makes sense to have USDA helping to pick up the costs of these things, and and as we've talked about, de-risk them. Over the long term, it may be that the private sector fills in, comes in. There's more interest, supply chains, carbon markets, whatever it is. And in that case, USDA may. Maybe our role is more about exactly what you just talked about. Maybe we're providing insurance products, or maybe we're providing other things that that just, again, help to de-risk, but don't have the taxpayer picking up all the costs. Um, I think we've got some learning to do before we figure that out. And you know, the idea of pilots here is actually 
is actually to do that, to see what comes in, to see where the, where the private sector comes in, what their interest is. And, um, and again, your point about transparency, that's not only important from the standpoint of, you know, producers thinking about understanding the implications for their own operations. It matters for the public. We need to build public confidence in this. We need to build consumer confidence that ag and forestry have an, a role to play and that they can deliver. They can deliver results even while they produce uh, food and fiber. And that public narrative is really important as well. Um, you know, because people are gonna make policy choices. Where, where do we want to invest? Companies are gonna make investment choices. Where do we want to get our reductions? We want them to say, hey, agriculture is a, is a, a really important option here. And oh, by the way, there are all these other co-benefits. We're gonna keep farmers in business. We're gonna support rural communities. We're gonna support clean water, whatever it is. So that data and transparency will, will help the, the public narrative as well. I'm glad that you touched on that piece because I, you know, if you know about my background at all, sharing online about dairy sustainability is that if we can do all of the best sustainability work, all the best conservation work, and if we can't relay that to the public, then it doesn't make it very far. It doesn't do a whole lot of good. Um, and, you know, looking at like the global picture, I think, you know, the U.S. has led the way in a lot of sustainability efforts in agriculture. And we have to be able to convey that and be able to share that with our public and have them understand that better that, you know, if you're looking at global numbers, make sure you check in on what the U.S. numbers are because farmers have really made a lot of strides here. Um, so making sure that we tell our story in an effective way backed up by data is just going to help us that much more with public understanding of agriculture and exactly what's going on on farms, especially as we are implementing these new technologies. You know, if a, if a producer, if a, sorry, if a consumer is, you know, unsure of a technology, and then we add a ton of new technology, they're going to be even more unsure. And so making sure we take them along on this sustainability journey with us so that they understand the technology we're adding, what kind of grants we're getting, all the ins and outs of it um, just goes a long way for building that trust between farmers, where their food comes from, and consumers. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And we're going to be in competitive global markets. Consumers internationally are going to care, care about these things. And there's a real role for technology and investments in productivity. Productivity matters for the climate. We, can, we, we have to feed nine plus billion people by 2050, produce wood, produce fiber, all those things. Our efficiency in doing that, you know, what we can produce per inputs is, turns out to be really, really important. U.S. livestock production, whether it's dairy or beef, is more efficient than the rest of the world because we've invested in technology, we've invested in genetics and a whole, a whole bunch of other things. And that happens to matter for the climate. So it's both thinking about how do we, how do we reduce emissions? How do we increase sequestration, but maintain the productivity of our farms, ranches, and forests? And telling that story with the public, getting them to understand it is really, really important. And I think it'll probably be increasingly important in international markets as well. And that's exactly what I'm getting at with with my angle to this is that I know that on our farm, we are reducing our carbon footprint and we're building our our stored carbon in our soils. We got data to back it up and we're being way more profitable because of it. And we're, and we're not taking government subsidies anymore either. We're off of all that. We're doing it on our own um, because we're more resilient. But today I can't participate in the markets because of the definition of additionality and, uh, and how we're going about this. 
We are going to take a quick break and we will be back in just a minute. Changing like tunes a little bit, changing paths here. I want to move off of the climate smart commodities and ask you about um, what other big challenges are kind of facing agriculture. And don't laugh at that question because I feel like that we could talk for another like three hours, maybe like four weeks about challenges. But, you know, I was reading an article this morning saying $20 milk. You know, my whole life, if you hit $20 milk, like that's great. And the article was saying that that's, you know, it's just not going to be enough with inflation and the cost, the input costs. So what are you seeing kind of with those big challenges right now that farmers are facing? No question. I mean, prices are are strong right now generally across agriculture, but there are, there are concerns about input costs. You know, as you all know, most of USDA's programs are on the revenue yield side of the equation, right? And less on kind of the input cost side. So part of the response is to make sure we're doing as good a, 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 good a job as we can on the safety net, Conservation programs, whatever it is, to provide assistance to agriculture that will indirectly help on the on the uh, on the cost side. There are things we, I mean, you all well know. There are things you can do on the fertilizer side, conservation tillage that certainly can help you on on the input side. Um, and so we'll, you know, we'll, we'll continue to do those things. But that's something that you 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 hear out in the field is concern about input costs, and you know, we all hope that 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 abates over time. And our, you know, what we can do is provide the resources we can and, on a, as I said, on the conservation side, help to drive efficiencies and, and those types of things. That's a big issue that we hear everywhere. The other big issue that, that we hear is, is and it's, it's related to climate, right, is extreme weather, drought, extreme rain events, storms, tornadoes, uh, wildfire in the West, all those things. And... We have a set of tools at USDA to help with those things. We have, obviously, crop insurance and disaster programs. We have conservation programs that can help us think about how do you, how do you create more resilient uh, systems in the, lo- in the long term. But there's probably a conversation to be had as these things get more intense about, do, does USDA have the right set of tools to help producers? I'll give you an example. Klamath Basin, we had Klamath producers come to us last January, January 2021, they were looking at no water for the upcoming season. What were they going to do? They've got debt, they've got, you know, and they can't plant. And we don't, we don't, we, you know, we can retire lands over 10 years through CRP. That's not what they wanted. Um, We can think about long-term conservation through EQIP or CSP or other things. That wasn't going to help us, help them get through. We've got backward-looking disaster programs, crop insurance and disaster and those types of things. We needed a forward-looking disaster program. We were able to use some flexibility in the appropriations bill to do that, but there are going to be challenges in agriculture like that. And we need to make sure that, that we've got the, the toolbox necessary. That's going to be a conversation with everybody in agriculture. And it's going to be a conversation with, with folks on Capitol Hill, members of Congress and others sort of ask that question as we go into the 23 farm bill. Well, but I think especially those farmers, what I'm thinking about, whether it be in Tara's neck of the woods where they're aquifer and like what's going to be the long term of that or my neck of the woods in Iowa where it's, you know, the uh, degradation of our soils and erosion and, and uh, car, you know, a lot of it losing the carbon out of our soils, losing our organic matter and stuff, losing our topsoil. We need to be looking as farmers at, hey, we're causing some of these problems right now. And like those guys, hey, we're 
going to run out of water here in our aquifer. We should probably get this figured out because we're the ones that are going and causing the problem. And we shouldn't expect the taxpayer to come and bail us out for what we did and what we caused upon ourselves. So, you know, how do we how do we help to look more holistically, I guess, at like, guys, how do we, like, what's that that long-term risk? And I think a lot of farmers in Iowa, at least, it's, well, yeah, maybe I'm, you know, eroding my soil at, you know, the, the, the to the depth of a, you know, dime per acre per year or whatever, but you don't really see it right now until you look more holistically at, yeah, over the last 150 years, here's the problem. And, you know, might be an issue in 20 years from now or maybe 70 years from now, but it's definitely still going to be a problem no matter what time frame you look at if we don't change. Yeah, I think about when I was a little kid, we had a big cornfield and it used to run, like get a big heavy rain event. It would run, it was a creek that would, it wasn't there until we got a big rain event and then it would run right by our house. And, you know, my brother and I used to get the inner tube and float down the creek thinking this was great. I think about it now and think about, oh, my God, all that soil that was washing off that field. You know, no, we weren't doing conservation tillage or anything like that. And, you know, part of our part of the I mentioned earlier, you know, car share, part of the car share and conservation programs to make sure everybody's got skin in the game. And, and you know, the the good news here is, is that there's alignment in the sense that folks recognize the importance of topsoil, recognize the importance of of those things for productivity and so there should be an economic incentive to maintain that um, that soil productivity. And there is a, you know, I would argue there's a role for us to think about whether it's conservation programs or data or things like that. But yeah, I mean, you know, agriculture needs to take responsibility and forestry's got similar issues, um, you know, that we think about in that space. And, and you know, the question is, how do we how do we move forward in a way that maintains that um, that productivity? Well, let me jump in again here because one of those things that is also happening in D.C. that's right along these same lines is the Growing Climate Solutions Act that we've hit a lot here on Commodity Credit Corp, you know, and their deployment of the billion dollars and stuff that has everyone all abuzz right now. But Growing Climate Solutions Act was also angled at kind of the same thing, that holistic farm planning and utilizing dollars coming out of the, you know, legislative side of things. Uh, to go here. what What's the status of that? I know it passed through the Senate. Um, I believe it's still sitting in the House. Are we going to see that bill come back? Um, or or is there a role for it, I suppose, at this point, too? I, I hope we see it. I, I, and I'm, you know, there's, I got asked about it uh, during my uh, little hearing that you mentioned uh, up on Capitol Hill. There's strong interest passed with strong bipartisan support on the Senate side. It is, it is uh, I think it's an important tool, and I would argue actually fits quite well with the partnerships uh, for climate smart commodities because there, there are a bunch of things USDA needs to think about. There's, as you all know, there's some chaos out there and what methodologies do we use to measure and there are different, different standards out there. And the Growing Climate Solutions Act sort of starts to put USDA in the, in the place of starting to evaluate some of those, evaluate technical assistance, bring together farmers and ranchers to to look at those um, those things, and I think that's a that's a good thing. There is a long term question which the Growing Climate Solution Act starts to head us down the road uh, on: is what role for standards? USDA think about standards related to climate smart commodities or any of those things, and that's one of those places where I think it's going to be a conversation with agriculture. What does agriculture and forestry need? What do consumers need? What do what do folks that procure a large amount of commodities need? And we'll we'll sort this out a little bit, but I, you know the 
The good news is on something like Growing Climate Solutions Act is there's broad bipartisan support. We're in a different, you know, again, back to the kind of what I said earlier, like we're in a different place than we were with respect to agriculture a decade or more ago. We need to maintain that. We need to maintain that bipartisan, you know, support, that support from agriculture and forestry and a lot of people in the conservation environmental um, community as well. I think the Climate Smart or the Growing Climate Solutions Act uh, strikes a good balance there and, you know, hopefully it'll move. So something I know a lot of the groups I work with have been talking about is, um, you know, early adopters. Like, what is USDA looking at as far as, you know, um, supporting those early adopters? Like, we're talking a lot about moving forward, which is amazing, but none of us would be moving forward. Um, You know, for example, the technology we're looking at, if the first farmer hadn't installed it, you know, five years ago, and then we get to go research it and find out about it. Uh, what are we, what is USDA and all of us as farmers doing kind of to support those early adopters in a lot of these climate solutions? Great question. And it's another, it's another equity question. We talked about other equity questions. One equity question is how do we make sure that the folks that stepped out, put their neck on the line, don't, you know, don't get screwed basically because of their stepping out. And so, um, you know, we've designed the partnerships program to allow for that. We hope producers will, um, our groups of producers will come forward with projects that recognize the importance of, of, uh, of early adopters. One of the nice things about not focusing just on carbon, but focusing on climate smart commodities. So you could actually design things that actually reward folks that have been implementing those practices for a long time. That's important. You see some in carbon markets. Could you do a look back that, that provides some, you know, some, value to those folks. And I think, you know, thinking about that in the context of markets is fine. And then I think we can think about, you know, are there opportunities for CSP or other USDA tools to to reward that and and to, you know, um, uh, and, to, and to figure out ways to make sure um, early adopters are, 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 you know, remain in the game. I mean, there's a, if you don't do it, there's a perverse incentive, which is folks are like, well, you know, I'll just plow that field up, start over again, and, and you know, then go into the program. We don't want folks doing that. We want to reward uh, good behavior. And there's always been this kind of policy question about additionality and all this stuff. And frankly, you know, there's a lot of hand-wringing around additionality. But at some point, you just want to, we want to get the, the incentives pointed um, in the right direction, reward people, that's okay. And then over time, you're going to make more forward progress. And, you know, over 10, 20 years, the additionality stuff becomes much less, uh, much less important, I think. And I think we, we get a little bit too hung up with some of that stuff sometimes. Let's, let's get everybody oriented in a positive direction with positive incentives, with a lot of buy-in. And those, those questions will kind of take care of themselves. You're, you're getting into one of my favorite activities, which is complaining about the definition of additionality. <laughs> My, my favorite was, and, and so here, here's basically for, for what additionality is. And, and I'm on the working group with the climate action reserve. So full transparency there. That's one of the main registries and the definition of additionality basically being you submit to the carbon markets. Here's what your historical management practices were. Now you agree to make some changes and now you have a new, uh, you have that one-time practice change that triggers your additionality. Those are your additional practices. Now you get paid for the change in your carbon footprint between what you were doing versus what you were doing. Farms like mine that have been using no-till since 1978 and cover crops since 2013, even with a look back of five or 10 years or whatever, we still aren't going to get really rewarded for the additionality basically being that one-time practice change, which essentially what it ends up doing is 
because we've copied and pasted the definition from other carbon markets, which I want to get into as well, because I think a lot of farmers haven't realized carbon markets are not new. They've been around for a long time. And some of these definitions go beyond just ag. But I do think that there's a role for uh, USDA or for DC to play to help us to change and open up that definition of additionality in order to have it not be based on a one-time practice change, which basically incentivizes just privatized cost share and to do the bare minimum to trigger the biggest outcome, which is where I worry about it. But we need to look at what is your annual additionality, your annual carbon footprint. Um, what's your annual, I call it annual carbon cost of production. Uh, but it's uh, it's looking at what is your actual net contribution to the problem. And in my piece, being one of those early adopters, I'm not worried about getting paid for what we're doing. That has no part of it. We're doing what we do because it's making us money. It's making us more resilient. And uh, we're doing what we do because it's paying the bills and it's helping us be profitable. What I worry about is if we don't change these definitions, we don't open up and level the playing field here and be more transparent. I worry that the buyers are going to be looking at it saying, well, what the heck? Like, what am I actually getting here? Am I getting carbon offsets or am I getting privatized cost share? And and that they have these massive goals and a farm like mine cannot necessarily directly participate to help them to meet their goals. And so we, we're creating some divide there. That's my biggest piece on uh, opening up the transparency here and changing some of these definitions is has nothing to do with us making money on this. Obviously, I, I'm all for it. I'm all for them paying us for the carbon that we're sequestering. Like, sweet, thanks. But the biggest thing is they've got some massive goals here and they're going to need everybody on board if we're going to meet these goals. And today we can't be. Yeah, I think that's right. I will, uh, you know, look, the integrity, methodology, all that stuff matters a lot. And we need to, we need to do what we can to get it right. I will say, if we're spending all of our time arguing about additionality, leakage, permanence, all those things, we are losing the argument. If we are talking about the role that agriculture can play, the opportunities for for new markets, the opportunities for significant uh, climate gains, and yep, we're gonna we're gonna design some methodologies that'll make sure we we get those real uh, benefits. You know, part of the problem is. When offsets came along, we were all living in this world where we were going to offset coal emissions with climate smart ag and forestry and everybody, oh my, we got to count every last molecule of carbon, right? And it sort of created this, again, kind of this hand wringing and teeth gnashing around offsets. And, you know, we need to make sure that we keep broadly the incentives moving in the right direction that we that we're able to scale get more people in and that we're able to have a system with tracks, producers coming in and out, lands coming in and out, that produce that tracks carbon outcomes, all that stuff. And if we do that at scale, we're going to be okay. And I think the markets will figure it out. I think that's right. Any a quick thought here on today, my understanding is that agriculture is about 12% of the U.S.'s carbon footprint and about 15% globally. I'd love your updated uh, numbers on that. But we're being looked to as one of the few mark one of the few sectors that can not only offset our own carbon footprint, but be actually carbon positive and offset others too. Any data or like some notes on that to kind of tee up why there's such a big focus on agriculture as being part of the solution? Yeah. I mean, if you look, U.S. agriculture is somewhere 10%, 11% of um, greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S., the international numbers vary widely depending on what you put in the ag bucket. If you throw deforestation into the ag bucket, all of a sudden the numbers get huge. And if you throw 
transport costs and you know like go upstream and how much it how much natural gas is used to produce nitrogen fertilizer like all that stuff the numbers can get big but in the US the numbers are smaller than the international numbers because one we're not deforesting two we're actually very very efficient and things like precision precision ag and you know all those things those new technologies actually matter and productivity matters and to your point you know, there are opportunities to go negative. Think about a biofuel where you strip the, you know, make it using climate smart practices, stip, stick the car, uh, strip the carbon off and stick it in the ground. Well, that's interesting. Think about on the forestry side, some of the opportunities in, in long-lived wood products. You know, we've got huge emissions associated with forests in the West and forest fires. We thin those, those areas, get natural fire back in, take the stuff we thin and turn it into... Uh, you know, whether it's bioenergy or, or long-lived wood products, there are significant gains there. And so if you start doing the math on how do you get to net zero by 2050, all of a sudden agriculture and forestry start to look pretty darn interesting. Are we going to have some emissions? Of course, we're going to have some emissions, but we can go negative. And if you can go negative, that, that starts to, you know, it's interesting. And Tara, on the dairy side, think about the opportunities to take methane, create energy, offset emissions elsewhere, store carbon in soils. I mean, all of a sudden, like this is pretty interesting. And currently right now, I think your new numbers, um, USDA, EPA's new numbers that came out were the ag is 11% emissions, but also a 12% removal of, of uh, carbon. So we're technically already that carbon sink. So, I mean, I think looking at that today gives a lot of hope for the future of like, if we're already here, like how much more can we do to, you know, offset other industries? Yeah. So forestry in the U.S. is accounts to it varies a little bit from year to year, but it's in the neighborhood of 11, 12 percent of carbon that goes up from fossil fuels comes back down in, in the forestry sector. Grasslands take um, can, can store a significant amount of, uh, of carbon as well. If we can keep folks in the cattle business and the livestock business, some parts, we can, we can store more carbon in those in those soils. And by the way, produce a lot of really cool habitat for a whole bunch of other stuff as well. And so you know, there are big opportunities. And you know, as we talked about before, there's some really interesting co-benefits that go along with that that involve, yeah, involve butterflies and water and all that stuff's really, really important, but people as well and rural communities as, as well. And if we can tell that story, if we can build that narrative, we ought to create demand for the use of agriculture and forestry as a, as a climate you know, as a, as a way to solve climate. Well, on that note, I'm going to pivot us again a little bit as we wrap up. So I we kind of did things out of order today. You we're supposed to start off with like nice, fluffy questions at the beginning and then like transition to harder questions. No, Tara, hammer right into it. We, we got no time to waste here. We went straight into it. So maybe for a final question, you know, we Mitchell mentioned that you have a farm in Virginia. Maybe share a little bit about your farm, um, but then looking to the future, what are you most excited about for agriculture, for your farm, for the family farm across the United States? What what do we have to look forward to? So I mentioned that I grew up and my parents were both in the horse business. And then I just, I married hard back into it. My wife, Julie, was a very accomplished three-day event rider and then became a, a race rider. She ran steeple, uh, road steeplechase races, which if you've ever seen that, you will know that my wife does not lack for courage and now trains horses, uh, mostly race horses at our place. So we've got, you know, we've got a pretty good horse operation and, and, um, and we board some horses as well. So in some respects, yes, we're in the horse business. We're also in the grass business. 
um, you know, and and so uh, you know we've got a significant amount of of the place uh, that's dedicated to to uh, growing grass to grow thoroughbreds. I will say that, you know, there's a certain amount of woods on the place that I go in and, you know, tinker around with, uh, with, with, with a little bit of, uh, invasive species control and other things to scratch my forestry itch. Um, so that's important as well. But the other thing I say is my, my family's actually owned some land in South Carolina for about a hundred plus years, bought it in 1906. And that has been managed for, wildlife conservation forever. But one of the things we've done to support the wildlife is, is harvest timber. And so this balance between conservation and production is something I've been around my whole life. And in essence, that's kind of what I'm doing at USDA as well. And so, you know, it's not a, you know, we tend to the environmental community oftentimes tend to polarize things. It's conservation or production. For me, it's always been kind of the same thing. And for you guys as well. In some respects, my my kind of personal life and my personal relationship with land very much has influenced what I've done in a career, as a career. No, that's awesome, and I think that's definitely what what I gained from this chat and stuff too. And and your direct insight and passion and your ability to to really give us good answers, I thought on these questions stuff like really appreciate it. Really appreciate you taking the time here for uh, uh, spending spending the time with us. We dug really deep into some of this, obviously, as you know, we're able to do that because Tara and I are deep into this too, and it's really important and and it's really exciting too. I mean, there's some great things happening, and um, and I'm I'm really excited for how far, how fast it's pushing, and where the future of it is going to be, and uh, it sets us up in a really good spot. There's a lot of farms that are coming to the table here, and it's big farms, it's small farms, it's a lot of farms that even just. I would argue that even over the last just, you know, even 12, 18, 24 months, it's been really uh, pushing hard, uh, hard and fast towards this direction, at least here. And from my observations, it definitely has been. And uh, we all got to hold on tight. This is all going to go fast. I think you're right. I think you're right. And it's it's um, there's there's oftentimes a lot of polarization around conservation, environmental issues. This feels one like one where we're, we're starting to develop a broad middle here of folks really engaged in productive ways. And we just gotta, we gotta make sure that's where we stay. I think that's probably a really great place to wrap up there is just very well said that um, there's a lot of opportunity, a lot of excitement in agriculture. And I know I'm personally excited to see where we go for the next, you know, five to 10 years because we are moving so quickly and a lot of things are changing. So many of us are collaborating on very unique partnerships. Um, So it's gonna be an exciting next, you know, half a decade, decade in agriculture. Indeed. And uh, look forward to working with you guys on it. Yeah, appreciate the time. Thanks for hopping on. We'll let you. Uh, we'll let you keep solving all of the world's problems here. <laughs> we'll solve them together. That sounds great. Yeah. That sounds awesome. Sounds great. Thank you. Thanks, Robert. Well, that was an interesting conversation with Robert. A lot of great insight on the climate smart commodities. Yeah, no, we knew that that was going to be a big conversation and uh, I thought it really got knocked out of the park. Um, Definitely impressive. And, um, you know, there's some interesting things happening from the federal government kind of side of things that I think is really important for us to have on the podcast here um, because it's going to impact all of us. Um, You know, everyone that's listening to this, like this is moving really, really quickly. So very important to stay involved. 
watch for these uh, these projects as they get rolled out um, because there's going to be a lot of opportunity, I think, for for a wide array of farms to take these new initiatives and be able to utilize that as kind of the jumping off point to really get involved. Yeah, I think our goal for season five of field work should be to find some of these projects and interview them, see what happens, see what the outcome of this, you know, this money is and where well, it goes. There's a lot of groups that are are coming with very, very interesting um, ideas and proposals on how do we how do we improve here. Um, but the most important part of all of it was the the big momentum, of course, of all driven directed by the Fieldwork Podcast. That's what's driving all the momentum in this. Obviously, space. obviously, you're. I mean, I've just come on, but the previous three seasons have made quite a splash in the regenerative ag sustainability world. That's it for the Fieldwork Podcast today. Our show is produced by Todd Melby with lots of great help from Anna Canny. Thanks to Kristen Schmidt, who runs our social media, and to Lauren Humpert, who is our project coordinator. Thanks to all the technical directors at American Public Media who help us record and mix the show. Be sure to check us out on social media. We're at Fieldwork Talk on all the usual channels. And we'd love it if you wrote us a review to help other people find us. And give us a call, uh, maybe with some of your ideas on on how these dollars can be utilized and where this can really go. Give us a call with your comments or questions, 651-228-4810, 651-228-4810. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye.